Chapter 30 of The Countess of Rodelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 30. Consuelo remained buried in a strange stupor. That which astonished her the most, that of which the testimony of her senses could hardly persuade her was, not the magnanimous conduct of Albert, nor his heroic sentiments, but the miraculous facility with which he himself solved the terrible problem of the destiny which he had formed for her. Was it then so easy for Consuelo to be happy? Was Liverani's love so legitimate? She thought she must have dreamt what she had just heard. It was already permitted her to give herself up to her attachment for the unknown. The austere invisibles called him equal to Albert himself in greatness of mind, in courage and virtue. Albert himself justified her and defended her against the blame of drink. Finally, Albert and the invisibles, far from condemning their mutual passion, abandoned them to their free choice, to their invincible sympathy, and all this without conflict, without effort, without cause of regret or remorse, without its costing a single tear to anyone. Consuelo, trembling with emotion more than with cold, redescended to the vaulted hall and renewed the fire which Albert and Trank had scattered on the hearth. She looked at the wet marks of their feet upon the dusty tiles. It was a testimony of the reality of their appearance which Consuelo had need of in order to believe it. Crouched under the arch of the chimney, like the dream of Cinderella, protected by the spirits of the hearthstone, she fell into a profound meditation. So easy a triumph of a destiny did not appear intended for her. Still no fear could prevail against Albert's marvelous serenity. It was precisely that respecting which Consuelo could least imagine a doubt. Albert did not suffer. His love did not revolt against his sense of justice. He accomplished, with a kind of enthusiastic joy, the greatest sacrifice which man can possibly offer to God. The strange virtue of that unique man struck Consuelo with surprise and horror. She asked herself if such a freedom from human weakness was consistent with human affections. Did not this apparent insensibility indicate a new phase of insanity in Albert? After the exaggeration of evils produced by memory and the exclusiveness of feeling, had he not undergone a sort of paralysis of the heart and recollection? Could he have been cured of his love? And was that love so small a thing that a simple act of his will, a single decision of his logic, could efface it even to the smallest trace? Even while admiring this triumph of philosophy, Consuelo could not escape a little humiliation at seeing thus destroyed by a breath that long passion of which she had been justly proud. She recalled the least words he had said, and the expression of his face when he uttered them was still before her eyes. 
It was an expression which Consuelo did not know in him. Albert was as much changed in his exterior as in his feelings. To speak truly, he was a new man, and if the sound of his voice, if the character of his features, if the reality of his words had not confirmed the truth, Consuelo might have thought she saw in his stead that pretended Socia, that imaginary Trismegatus, whom the doctor insisted on wishing to substitute for him. The modification which the state of calmness and of health had effected in Albert's person and manners seemed to confirm Sufferville's error. He had lost his frightful thinness, and he seemed grown taller. So much had his weakened and languishing form straightened and become younger. He had a different gait. His movements were more supple, his step more firm, his dress as elegant and elaborate as it had before been neglected, and, so to speak, despised by him. Even his smallest actions astonished Consuelo. Formerly, he would not have thought of making a fire. He would have pitied his friend Trank for being wet, and would not have bethought himself so far were exterior objects and material cares foreign to him, of gathering together the brands scattered under his feet. He would not have shaken his hat before replacing it on his head, and would have allowed the rain to stream down his long locks without feeling it. Finally, he wore a sword, and never in former times would he have consented to handle, even in play, that arm of parade, that symbol of hatred and of murder. Now it did not interfere with his motions. He saw its blade glitter before the flame, and it did not recall to him the blood shed by his ancestors. The expiation imposed upon Jean Ziska in his person was a sorrowful dream, which a refreshing sleep had entirely effaced. Perhaps he had lost the remembrance of it in losing the other remembrances of his life and of his love, which seemed to have been, and no longer to be, his life itself. Something uncertain and inexplicable then took place in Consuelo, something which resembled sorrow, regret, and wounded pride. She repeated to herself Trank's last supposition respecting a new love in Albert, and this supposition appeared to her probable. Only a new love could give so much tolerance and so much mercy. The last words of Albert, as he led away his friend and promised him a tale, a romance, were they not a confirmation of that doubt, an avowal and explanation of that discreet and profound joy with which he appeared filled? Yes, his eyes shone with a brightness which I have never seen in them, thought Consuelo. His smile had an expression of triumph, of transport, and he did smile. He almost laughed, he to whom a laugh seemed formerly unknown. There was even, as it were, irony in his voice when he said to the baron, You will soon laugh also at the praises you now bestow upon me. There is no further doubt. He loves, and it is no longer me. He does not contend against it. He does not think of combating it. He blesses my unfaithfulness. He impels me to it. He rejoices at it. He does not blush for me. 
He abandons me to a weakness at which I alone must blush, and all the shame of which will fall upon my head. Oh, heaven, I was not alone culpable. Albert was still more so. Alas, why have I discovered the secret of a generosity which I should have so much admired and which I never should have been willing to accept? I feel sensibly now there is something holy in sworn faith. God alone, who changes our hearts, can free us from it. Then the beings united by an oath can perhaps offer and accept the sacrifice of their rights. But when mutual inconstancy alone presides over the divorce, something horrible takes place, and it is a complicity of parasite between those two beings. They have coldly killed in their bosoms the love which united them. Consuela regained the wood at the first dawn of day. She had passed the whole night in the deserted tower, engrossed by a thousand gloomy and sorrowful thoughts. She had no difficulty in finding the road to her dwelling, though she had passed it in the darkness, and the hurry of her flight had made it appear shorter to her than it now did on her return. She descended the hill and went along the bank of the stream as far as the grating, which she adroitly passed by walking along the crosspiece which connected the bars at bottom on a level with the water. She was no longer timid or agitated. She cared little about being seen, decided as she was to relate all plainly to her confessor. Besides, the sentiment of her past life absorbed her so completely that she felt only a secondary interest in present things. Hardly did the Liberani exist for her. The human heart is so formed. Dawning love requires dangers and obstacles. Extinguished love is reanimated when it is no longer in our power to reawaken it in the heart of another. This time Consuelo's invisible watchers seemed to be asleep, and her nocturnal promenade did not appear to have been remarked by anyone. She found a new letter from the unknown on her harpsichord, as tenderly respectful as that of the day before had been bold and passionate. He complained that she had shut herself up in her apartment as if she doubted his timid veneration. He humbly asked that she would sometimes permit him to see her in the garden at twilight. He promised not to speak to her and not to show himself if she so required whether from indifference of heart or the decision of his conscience, added he, Albert renounces you, tranquilly, even coldly, in appearance. Duty speaks louder than love in his heart. In a few days the Invisibles will announce to you his resolution and will give the signal for your liberty. You can then remain here to be initiated into their mysteries if you persist in that generous intention and until then I will keep my oath not to show myself to your eyes. But if you made that promise only from compassion for me, if you desire to be freed from it, speak and I break all my engagements and fly with you. I am not Albert, not I. I have more love than virtue. Choose. Yes, that is certain, said Consuelo, letting fall the letter of the unknown upon the keys of the harpsichord. This one loves me, and Albert does not love me. It is possible that he has never loved me, 
and that my image was only a creation of his delirium. Yet that love appeared to me sublime, and would to heaven it was still enough so to compel mine by a painful and heroic sacrifice. That would be much better for us both than the tranquil disjunction of two unfaithful souls. It would be better also for Liverani to be abandoned by me, with effort and with anguish, than to be received as a necessity of my isolation. In a moment of indignation, of shame, and of sorrowful regret, she replied to Liverani these few words, I am too proud and too sincere to deceive you. I know what Albert thinks, what he has resolved. I have discovered the secret of his confidence to a mutual friend. He abandons me without regret, and it is not virtue alone which triumphs over his love. I will not follow the example which he gives me. I loved you, and I renounce you without loving another. I owe this sacrifice to my dignity, to my conscience. I hope that you will not again approach my dwelling. If you should yield to a blind passion, and if you should draw from me any new confession, you will repent it. You would perhaps owe my confidence to the just anger of a broken heart and to the terror of a forsaken soul. That would be my punishment and your own. If you persist, Liverani, you have not the love I have dreamed. Liverani did persist, nevertheless. He wrote again and was eloquent, persuasive, sincere in his humility. You make an appeal to my pride, said he, and I have no pride with you. If you regretted an absent one in my arms, I should suffer without being offended. I would ask of you, prostrate before you and bathing your feet with my tears, to forget him and to trust to me alone. In whatever manner you loved me, and however little it might be, I should be grateful as for an immense happiness. Such was the substance of a succession of ardent and timid, submissive and persevering letters. Consuela felt her pride vanish before the penetrating charm of a true love. Insensibly, she accustomed herself to the idea that she had never been loved before, not even by the Count de Rudolstadt. Repelling then the involuntary vexation she had experienced at that outrage, committed upon the holiness of her recollections, she feared, by manifesting it, to become an obstacle to the happiness which Albert might promise to himself in a new love. She therefore resolved to accept in silence the decree of separation which he appeared desirous of imposing upon the tribunal of the invisibles, and she abstained from writing his name in her replies to the unknown, requesting him at the same time to imitate this reserve. Moreover, those replies were full of prudence and delicacy. Consuelo, when detaching herself from Albert and receiving in her soul the thought of another affection, did not wish to yield to a blind attraction. She forbade the unknown appearing before her and breaking his vow of silence until the invisibles had released him from it. She declared to him that it was freely and voluntarily she wished to adhere to that mysterious association which inspired her both with respect and confidence, that she was resolved to pursue the studies 
necessary to instruct herself in their doctrine and to avoid all personal preoccupation until by a little virtue she had acquired the right to think of her own happiness. She had not strength enough to say that she did not love him, but she had enough to say that she did not wish to love him without reflection. Leverani appeared to submit, and Consuelo studied attentively several volumes which Matthias brought to her one morning from the prince, saying that his highness and his court had left the residence, but that she would soon have news. She contented herself with this message, addressed no question to Matthias, and read the history of the mysteries of antiquity, of Christianity, and the various sects and secret societies derived from it. A very learned manuscript compilation, made in the library the Order of the Invisibles by some patient and conscientious adept. This serious and at first difficult reading by degrees seized upon her attention and even upon her imagination. The picture of the trials in the ancient Egyptian temples occasioned her many terrible and poetic dreams. The recital of the persecutions of the sects of the Middle Ages and of the revival affected her heart more than ever, and this history of enthusiasm predisposed her soul to the religious fanaticism of her approaching initiation. During a fortnight she received no message from without, and lived in her retreat, surrounded by the mysterious attentions of the Chevalier, but firm in her resolution not to see him and not to give him too much hope. The summer heats began to be felt, and Consuelo, absorbed moreover in her studies, had no time to repose and breathe at her ease but the fresh hours of evening. By degrees she had resumed her slow and dreamy walks under the shades of the enclosure. She thought herself alone, and yet I know not what vague emotion made her sometimes imagine the presence of the unknown not far from her. Those delightful nights, those beautiful shades, that solitude, that languishing murmur of water running among the flowers, the perfume of the plants, the passionate voice of the nightingale, followed by silences more voluptuous still, the moon throwing her broad oblique rays under the transparent shadows of balmy arches, the setting of vesper behind the rosy clouds of the horizon. What can I say? All the classical but eternally fresh and powerful emotions of youth and love plunged Consuelo's soul into dangerous reveries. A slender shadow upon the silvery sand of the alleys, the flight of a bird awakened by her approach, the rustling of a leaf shaken by the breeze, were enough to make her start and quicken her pace. But these slight terrors were hardly dissipated when they were replaced by an indefinable regret, and the palpitations of expectation were stronger than all the suggestions of her will. When she was more than usually troubled by the rustling of the leaves and the uncertain noises of the night, it seemed to her that someone was walking not far from her, that he fled at her approach and came near when she was seated. Her agitation informed her still better, she felt herself without strength for a meeting in that magnificent spot and under that beautiful sky. The breath of the breeze passed burning over her brow. 
She fled towards the pavilion and shut herself up in her chamber. The candles were not lighted. She hid herself behind a blind and ardently desired to see him by whom she did not wish to be seen. She did, in fact, see appear a man who walked slowly beneath her windows, without calling, without making a gesture, submissive and apparently satisfied to look upon the walls which he inhabited. That man was indeed the unknown. At least Consuelo felt it first by her agitation, and thought she recognized his stature and gait. But soon strange doubts and painful fears seized upon her mind. That silent promenade recalled to her Albert as much as Liverani. They were at the same height, and now that Albert, transformed by new health, walked with ease and no longer kept his head bowed upon his bosom, or resting on his hand in a grieved or diseased attitude, Consuela knew no more of his external appearance than that of the Chevalier. She had seen the latter a moment in the broad daylight, walking at a distance before her and enveloped in the folds of his cloak. She had seen Albert also for a few moments in the deserted tower, since he had become so different from what she knew him, and now she saw one or the other very vaguely by the light of the stars, and each time that she thought herself on the point of determining her doubts, he passed under the shadow of the trees and was there lost like a shadow himself. He disappeared at last entirely, and Consuela remained divided between joy and fear, and reproached herself with having wanted courage to call Albert at every hazard in order to promote a sincere and loyal explanation between them. This repentance became stronger in proportion as he withdrew, and at the same time the persuasion that it was indeed he whom she had just seen. Carried away by that habit of devotedness, which in her had always held the place of love for him, she said to herself that if he came thus to wander about her, it was in the timid hope of conversing with her. This was not the first time he had attempted it. He had told Trank so one evening, when he had perhaps passed Liverani in the dark. Consuela resolved to bring about that necessary explanation. Her conscience made it her duty to enlighten her doubts respecting the true disposition of her husband, whether generous or inconstant. She redescended to the garden and ran after him, trembling and yet courageous, but she had lost all trace of him, and she searched the whole enclosure without meeting him. At last, as she issued from a grove, she suddenly saw a man standing beside the water, was he indeed the same she sought? She called him by the name of Albert. He started, passed his hands over his face, and when he turned, the black mask already covered his features. Albert, is it you? cried Consuelo. It is you, you alone whom I seek. A smothered exclamation betrayed in that unknown, I know not what emotion of joy or of sorrow. He seemed to wish to fly. Consuela thought she had recognized the voice of Albert. She rushed forward and retained him by his cloak, but she desisted. The cloak opening had allowed her to see upon the breast of the unknown quite a large silver cross, which Consuelo knew too well. It was her mother's, the same which she had confided to the chevalier 
during her journey with him as a pledge of gratitude and sympathy. Liverani, said she, always you. Since it is you, farewell. Why have you disobeyed me? He threw himself at her feet, encircled her with his arms, and embraced her so ardently and respectfully that Consuelo had no longer strength to repel him. If you love me, and if you wish me to love you, leave me, said she to him. It is before the invisibles that I wish to see and hear you. Your mask terrifies me. Your silence freezes my heart. Liverani raised his hand to his mask. He was about to tear it off and speak. Consuelo, like the curious psyche, had no longer the courage to shut her eyes. But suddenly the black veil of the messengers of the secret tribunal fell over her head. The hand of the unknown, which had suddenly seized her own, was withdrawn in silence. Consuelo felt herself drawn without violence and without apparent anger, but with rapidity. She was raised from the ground. She felt the boards of a boat bend under her feet. She descended the stream a long while without being spoken to by anyone, and when the light was restored to her, she found herself in the subterranean hall where she had first appeared before the Tribunal of the Invisibles. End of chapter 30